Welcome to Talk Tennis, a podcast created specifically for you, the tennis fanatic. Join us each week as we work to elevate your game both on and off the court. We will deliver fresh episodes to keep you up to date with tennis trends and technologies, as well as exclusive interviews with industry experts, current and former pros, and so much more. Here's your host, Michelle. Today's guest is not only a former pro tennis player, she knows all about the pressure and performance that tennis demands, but she's also a mental health professional and is super passionate about working with athletes of all ages and calibers. She has seen success on and off the court and is here today to talk about all sorts of things, including being the CEO of South Asians in Sports, mental health challenges of athletes, transitioning out of sport, and so much more. Welcome to Talk Tennis, Neha Uberoy. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Excited so, to be here. Yes. Um, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. I got a little one joining me. Nice. Sorry, my door was just blocked. I'm no, so sorry. You're totally <laughs> fine. We love a cameo. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Michelle. Oh my gosh, totally fine. I'm totally fine with it. We we can literally leave that in and just be like, life, okay. man. <laughs> it's all they good. They just came from school. And when they come from school, they're like, where is mommy? Especially <laughs> on Friday. They're like, yeah, it's party time. <laughs> yeah. And I'm baking brownies downstairs. So Ooh. they're just like, what? yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, I think that's such a good organic intro anyways into like balance. <laughs> seriously, like balancing life and like, like all of the things that we have on our plate as humans as tennis players as athletes I mean I don't know (laughs) no it really is I mean I think everyone has to find their own balance and what balance means for them and what's important to them and what their values are and I think it's a learning process and you know I think we put a lot of pressure on women especially to have it figured out and know what it is but I think it's constantly changing at least for me um and and you are up against an entire society that doesn't really value um, parenthood the way that I feel like it should. Uh, And then your own kind of personal volition, what you want to do, what you want to accomplish outside of your role at home. So I've really taken the perspective of of having fun with it, but being very, very clear of what my priorities are. And I think I can thank having been a former elite athlete for that, where you know what your priorities are, what's important and how to cut out the noise really fast. Yeah, totally. Okay. So I personally, when I saw your name come across my email, I remember your name. I don't know if you remember me, but, (laughs) um, I met you and your sisters, um, in Arizona many lifetimes ago at Itusa, Academy. So I already know that you, I mean, like when I saw your name, I'm like, yeah, she is an amazing tennis player was, is still, I'm sure you still play. And then I know I've worked with your sister on some other, um, she has some other things that we've worked with them with Indy. And yeah, so like seeing your name was super refreshing and like really awesome. And you have little sisters also that I think I remember. Yes. Yes. Wow. What a small world. Great memory. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So uh, maybe we can jump off and you can start from the beginning, how tennis started for you. You guys are obviously a tennis family and how you kind of went from being a a little kid playing tennis to juniors to, I think you played at an academy. Well, obviously you're at Itusa for a bit, but talk to me about that. Yeah, sure. So I'm one of five girls. Um, My dad, you know, my dad's a first generation. My mom and dad both came from India. And I think, you know, I credit my father a lot for having a very 
grand vision and um, kind of big picture thinking, especially for um, immigrant families, you know, to say like, I want to make all of my female children athletes. Yes. I want them to be as, you know, as high as they can go in sports. Yes. He had a passion for tennis because um, in India, tennis is very popular. Someone who, he's someone who's watched like 14 US Opens in a row, you know, didn't miss a match, kind of died and, and lived for Pete Sampras and uh, Andre Agassi rivalry. So I think really a lot of credit to him. And I grew up, you know, following my two older sisters. I'm number three, um, their footsteps. And there was some talent there and there was some, you know, promise. And my dad just sort of being the entrepreneur that he is, you know, seized the opportunity. And one of my sisters and I, Shika, the one that, that you know, yeah. we moved to a tennis academy down in Tampa at Saddlebrook. Um, Andy Roddick was there. Marty Fish uh, was there. Prim Saripapat, who is also kind of a, a voice in tennis now, was there. Um, and, you know, I was very young. I was nine years old. My sister was 11. And that's, you know, we were thrown right into the jungle mm-hmm. of, um, <laughs> of competitive junior tennis. Uh, two really nice goody two-shoe Indian girls just thrown into this international mix where you learn a lot about survival and competition and and working hard and all of that. And having to balance that with, you know, having Asian parents who really highly prioritize academics as well. So we had a lot on our plates, uh, I at least did from a very young age. Playing the, the juniors, the USTA tournaments and learning how to deal with bad line calls and cheaters and parents and crazy tennis parents and that whole world, you know, being thrown into that was really my real education. That's where my real education right. was. And then um, I ended up uh, not playing a lot of ITF junior tournaments. We really uh, decided to take a page from the Liam sisters and work on our games. I think also being South Asian, um, my physique, I mean, I was just tiny. I was tiny for so long. I did not hit puberty the way my American or international Russian counterparts, you know, there's matches where I'm like shaking hands at the end of the match, looking directly vertically up, you know? So it, it, I think we took that into account, building our bodies, you know, building the physique that we needed to play really high elite level tennis. I'm really glad we did that. Uh, but along the way, I actually ended up um, going to college for a year where I played at Princeton. And um, after I played at Princeton, I came out of that and actually started playing some junior tournaments and then some professional tournaments. So my roadmap was a little bit abnormal in that I, you know, played all of the to- all of the different levels of tournaments at all the different stages, played up, played down. And, and I, I really liked that. I think it's important to mix it up and to focus on the, the, un, the unique individual. You know, when are they progressing? When are they maturing? When is their body physically ready to take on more? After my first year at Princeton, it was really great. Um, I got Ivy League Rookie of the Year. Nice. I was undefeated. That's awesome. It was, I was a little, you know, I was very young. Academically, I was super challenged. You know, I had come from basically you know, a homeschooling environment. Uh, I think you probably know this and most tennis players know this all too well. I'm not writing, you know, and winning essay competitions or doing math for fun on the weekends. I'm just getting through what I need to get done to be able to train. And so getting thrown into uh, the number one school in the country was very (laughs) overwhelming for me. 
uh, and especially being quite young as well. Yeah. But I, but I managed, I persevered. I'm, you know, you throw me in with sharks, I'll, I'll swim. And then it was life on the tour. And I joined my older sister, Shika, on the ITF and WTU circuit. I played on the tour for uh, five years, got to, I think, 190-something in singles, 100 in, 105 in doubles. You can correct me if I'm wrong. A bowl of WTU tour finals, some quarterfinals, played in the second round of the U.S. Open. I had, you know, I had a, a decent run. Uh, at least for the first five years, but I ended up at, um, ending my career pretty early. I was 21 uh, when I decided I couldn't do this anymore. Um, and really what was the the straw that broke the camel's back for me was I developed um, a very intense eating disorder. I ended up getting bulimi- bulimia and realized that um, I had to choose between my mental health or continuing to try to be a professional tennis player. And that was very hard decision for me to make it at such a young age. And there were a lot of factors, Michelle, that went into the development of the eating disorder. I would say if we were to look at it from a macro systems level, a lot of individual athletic and sports in general, um, is really set up for you to have one. <laughs> yeah, I've got uh, like chills as you're talking about this because yeah. I mean, as a tennis player, also here. <laughs> yeah, as a like, tennis player, right? And you know, as, as a female yeah. as well. I think, you know, the the more I study this in my profession, the more I see it, I'm like, wow, I was, I walked right into what doors were open for me to have. Mm-hmm. Um, not Not to blame anyone. I think, you know, I'm beyond that. But it's it's a, it's important to reflect now as we move forward, as we try to do better in the world of sports, in the world of tennis particularly, to understand what are really the factors that can create these kinds of monster diseases for young people, and especially for me, young women. So I ended up leaving tennis. Um, it was a very painful journey for me. I went back to Princeton after a six-year um, hiatus or, or leave of absence uh, and just kind of throwing myself back into a very cutthroat academic environment uh, was not easy for, for me. I was struggling with identity loss, um, with a lot of conflict with my family. You know, they were very disheartened. They were overwhelmed. They said, you know, you, you put, we, we put, we sacrificed so much. You put everything into this and you're just going to walk away from it. But I think what kept coming back to me was like, this is, I had to make this choice mm-hmm. for my own self-worth. I, I couldn't continue. And so I, I struggled with that for quite a while. And it ultimately led me to the work I do now as a social worker, as a therapist. Wow. I'm I'm like, I don't even know where to go from there because that's such a touching story. And to think that at such a young age, you had the bandwidth to put yourself first, essentially, like, sure, playing tennis would have been awesome and fun. And there's so many girls on tour that have struggle with their eating and eating disorders. And it sometimes it's the thing that you can control in an uncontrollable situation. But to say that, like, this is not the best path for me. And that's amazing. I have to give you huge props for that. And I'm sorry you had to go through that and make that tough choice, but it sounds like, and I'm all about the everything happens for a reason. It sounds like you're literally living and doing the work that you are meant to be doing and helping so many people. So 
Very cool. Thank you. It certainly feels that way now. I don't know. Ask me in 10 years, but <laughs> you know, it really, I really do feel like I, I am, I have found for myself a career, a lifestyle that is what I wanted. And I think tennis had to be part of that. And tennis is something that will always be part of me. So, you know, you can't take it away. Yeah. Uh, and I, I love who I am and I love that I am or was a tennis player. Um, and so, you know, being able to kind of hold both of those things true that I, I, yes, caused me a lot of pain, but I also love who I am because of it, um, has taken some work, but, um, but I'm really happy with, with where I am now. Awesome. So this randomly has come up this week for me and the, it just keeps coming into every conversation I seem to be having. But we there's a 60K ITF right now um, locally here in California. And I get to connect with some players that we work with. And I'm seeing names that, you know, um, Alexa Glatch is still playing. Bonda Ranko, yeah. right? Right, yeah. Bonda Ranko is playing. But then you see some of the ones up and coming. The, the junior uh, U.S. Open winner is playing. She's only 17. And so it's so... I, I really appreciate being on this side of the court at this point in my life because I can watch without, you know, I can kind of see all these things and I'm seeing these women who have been on tour for 10 years and you kind of see a little bit of a struggle and it's like, are they still having fun? But then you see the new one. Anyways, um, I'll get to my point. <laughs> the topic that keeps coming up for me this week is setting realistic goals and being okay with not being number one and being able to be an athlete and say, I want to be a double specialist. I don't have to be number one on the WTA and doubles, but I want to enjoy my life. I don't want to get injured. I want to travel. I want to enjoy time with my friends. I want to see my family. And maybe that means I'm top 30 and that's okay. I don't have to be number one. So do you have any perspective on sort of like wow. setting goals that are appropriate for us? Because I feel like growing up, we're all like, I want to be the best. And maybe that's not necessarily aligning with, our lives. It, it, does that make sense? <laughs> yes. You, this is such a great question. Uh, thank you. Because it's something that I think about a lot right? and I, I don't have a clear answer for you, but I'll try to just kind of brain dump my opinions on this. Yes. So I think I was acculturated to sport to think like, if you're not thinking about being number one in the world, get off the court right? Don't waste my time, coach's time, your resources. If you are not going to be number one, if you're not going to win Wimbledon and you're not going to believe it and desire it with your full being, get out of here, yep. right? <laughs> go big or go home, yeah. right? Like that is what I grew up thinking. And as I've come out of sport or as I've come through it, as I've started co coaching myself, now that I have young children, I realized that that might not actually be the most um, successful way to, to elicit the most success out of people. And the reason why is because then if the person doesn't achieve that goal within a certain time frame or feels like they can't, there's a sort of give up. You've put the bar too high and the person just shuts down. Mm -hmm. And I've seen this so often mm -hmm. time and time again with the smallest of examples and when you think about or listen to some of the greatest players who have ever played this sport, Roger Federer's recent retirement, almost every single one of them, or even other athletes, very rarely say, 
I wanted to be number one in the world. Mm -hmm. And I was going after that goal. If you hear what they said, they say, I fell in love with the game. Mm -hmm. I had love. I had a deep romance with this sport. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to see how long I could play it and how well I could play it and if it would bring me joy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And and that is just wild to me because it's so foreign to anything I was ever told. As tennis players, we put so much value on wins and losses. If we literally from the biggest realm to the littlest, did we win that point? Did we win that match? Did we win that tournament? And we always talk about most tennis pros and players, even at the low level, you're losing a lot more than you're winning. You're, you're losing every week. Yeah, every yeah. week. So you, you see that system of thinking really doesn't set you up for success. But as we, we're, we're seeing now that growth mindset, trusting the process, working on the process, doing your best for yourself, all these things sound very cliche, but they actually have a lot of evidence towards getting people closer to ultimate or larger goals or just getting their minds and brains to focus on competing and playing better tennis or better athletics. So it's very interesting for me that so much of the focus has always been on being the best and getting the best, but that's really not um, what actually creates a champion. And so you, your question, you know, you were kind of thinking about like, you have these veterans who are on the tour for years and years and are they happy? Do they still want to do this? You don't know because you don't know if they had stopped, would they have ever reached where they are now? Would they be as fulfilled? And there's so many sociological elements to that question, right? It's like, do they have fear that they don't know what else to do in life? Do they really still love it? Is it just that they continue doing it because they have friends here and they enjoy the travel and they enjoy the lifestyle? There, there, there must be so many of those factors, right? That we can sit them down and ask. And I have actually, I have asked 54 players, what, what are you doing? You know, why are you still doing it? And a lot of the people say I had a lot of fear leaving. I stayed an extra five, six, seven, eight years because I didn't know what else to do in my life. I didn't know who else I could be. And you'll see a lot of players who don't think about retirement or pre-retirement planning, they'll end up staying within tennis longer or within tennis roles. Um, and you'll even be guided by others. Oh, well, you, you have basically a PhD in tennis. This is where you can make the most money. So stay there. And, and it took... It takes a lot of courage and a lot of effort to deviate, go back to school, get another degree, maybe even get a GED and create another another vision for yourself. But if anything, we have as test players, it's willpower, right? Yeah. We have discipline and we have willpower and we need to know how to do things alone. Oh, 100%. And so, yeah. And so we can use some of those skills that we learn and start focusing on bringing those strengths elements out instead of being worried. You know, most of us as women, especially, we come out of tennis, we're maybe in our late 20s or, or early 30s. There's also a, a, a social progress that we've kind of missed, maybe marriage or kids or, you know, internships when people were in college. You know, I was a 32-year-old pregnant lady doing an internship. And I was okay with that. Yeah. You know, I was okay with that because I had a goal and I knew from tennis how to achieve goals. Right. So these are the sort of struggles that we think about when we think about people who are still playing on the tour or veterans or up and comers making that decision. There's a lot that goes into it. A hundred percent. And then even taking a further step back, I think it's so crucial for anyone that's like transitioning out of college tennis 
into what we like to call as the real world, <laughs> that is incredibly intimidating. And you're scared, you know, like, cool, I have this degree, but do I really? And but all I know is tennis. And should I just start working at a country club? And kind of like you said, you a lot of players don't have the opportunity to get those internships or jobs during their college time because they're competing. And so all of a sudden you're a little bit behind and you don't have the experience on your resume. And it's like, oh, shoot, now what? (laughs) So maybe talk a little bit about that as well. And like some tips, you're already giving great tips and but I'm sure a lot no, of our listeners are absolutely there. right. Yeah. And, and, you know, when, when you were training in the summer and playing those, those ITF tournaments, somebody was at Morgan Stanley doing their internship and then got themselves a full-time job or figured out that they didn't want to work in finance or, and, you know, you're continuously required to and want to take your tennis as far as you want and keep building there. Um, and so it just, it holds the same truth as it does as a, for a professional, you know, once you're, graduating from your tennis career uh, or evolving, as, as Serena said, yes. <laughs> you, have, you have to put the seeds in already. You have to plant, you know, and one thing you do have probably from your travels is a network. You must have created a network. Mm-hmm. Tap into that network. Talk to them. So many jobs these days are not resume based, right? They're network based. Um, and and also just knowing that the the skills you learn in tennis are not going to be transferable. I think that's really a blow to the ego for (laughs) tennis players. Just like, what? All those forehands I hit? You mean I can't just become a CEO of a a Fortune 500 company? Don't they know how hard I've worked and sweat? No, it does not transfer over. And, uh, you know, it's hard for us people who are really good at something and who have always been really, really good at something to suddenly be zero, to suddenly go to go to novice, to have a 25 year old girl be your supervisor when you're, you know, 32 and pregnant with your second child in an internship. That's a blow to the ego. Mm-hmm. But you're not that you're special, Michelle, but not in that way. Right. And I think it's hard for us tennis players to sometimes grasp that and to actually look at that in the face and be like, yeah, you know what? I have all of these strengths. They're a bit intangible. I'm going to have to use a different perspective here and to shift that. And and I'm saying tennis players, but I think most athletes will have will have this shift. So whether you are an elite college player or you were a professional, I think both of those. The great thing about being a college player is that you're probably walking out with a really nice degree. And education. Yeah. And you hit on it a little bit too. And anyone that's ever spent a little bit of time teaching tennis, no matter where you are, you meet so many cool people and maybe you'll meet that Fortune 500 CEO and then trade, <laughs> right. right? I mean, like, I've heard so many stories like that or people that always... I mean, you probably won't ask you to run the company. No, 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 no. <laughs> But you'll get... You'll get- Right. But that's what the ego says. It says I was a really effing good player. (laughs) Put me, put me in coach, put me in manager level. Right. Yeah. And so I think, I think it's just kind of taking a breath and saying you're special Neha, but not in this way. And we're learning again. We're playing the junior circuit again. We're hitting forehands against the wall again and it's okay. And that's what makes life beautiful. We're moving forward. We're evolving. We're going to the next thing. Yes. It's uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. I don't know if you saw, but Roger's post yesterday was awesome. And 
amazing because, you know, we're, we've all been wrapped up in his retirement, but it was like, you know, lost my last singles match, lost my last doubles match, lost my last tournament, lost my job. <laughs> and he was like, but it was everything I wanted it to be. And like your dream, it like it's you can't always paint the perfect picture. It's not always going to be this way, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be perfect for you. And he's like, I wouldn't want it on any other way. And it's just, I mean, obviously Roger's like untouchable, but like, it's like that. Like, do you think he wanted to lose all his last matches? No. Right. <laughs> right. But he was able to have self-efficacy and, and intention about what he chose. I think the, the, the thing you're looking, I think the thing you're saying here, Michelle, is that he made a choice. Yes. And once you make the decision and you make the choice, you have to empower yourself. Yes, right? If yes. you're saying I can't because I broke my leg, right? It's harder when you're injured. Yes, you can rehab. Yes, you can try. But ultimately, when you and your body have come to the realization that, yes, I'm done. No, it didn't go the way that I had planned for it to go. And if you can get to a point where you're okay with that, where you can just accept it, not that you have to glamorize it and be like, yeah, whatever. Because you might not believe that. You might be really cut up about that. And that's okay. It's, it's, it hurts and it sucks, but you'll, you'll survive. You'll survive. There's so much more to life. And you knew that going in, you knew that tennis was only going to be one third of your life. If that, right. It was only going to be a decade of your life. You knew that going in hundred percent. For those of us who are the Rogers and Serena's of the world, 24, 25 years on the tour is a ridiculously long time. Insane. Right. <laughs> and you're playing to your forties. But for most of us, we're thinking, okay, by the time I'm 30, there's something else I'm going to transition to. So maybe it happened a little earlier, or maybe it didn't happen how you wanted. And I think it's that letting go of that control that that dream or the way that I saw that dream didn't go out the way I wanted it to but I'm still holding on to myself. Maybe I've let go of that dream, but I still can hold on to myself and create new ones or different ones. Cause you, you knew that about yourself when you went into this. Let's talk a little bit more about body image and athletes. If you're okay with that, um, you obviously sure. <laughs> have been through it and on all sides of it, I guess just even like Body dysmorphia seems to be a hot topic with athletes in general, with humans in general, and it just continues to sort of be something that comes up. Maybe tennis is doing a better job lately because we're seeing different ages, different sizes, different ethnicities, different people being represented on on the pro tour, on the TV that we can watch. And maybe there's not that demand for being six pack abs absolutely beautiful so you get the GQ cover like perfect forehand to go with it what what do you think how has body image changed or is it still such a huge struggle for athletes especially on the tennis side yeah that's a great question I do think there is some positive change happening and I think you can see that outside of our tennis bubble like just with culture mm -hmm. generally you'll see bigger bodies being represented more diversity um sports illustrated you know you kind of people embracing curves. I think you'll see both like another entire other uh, spectrum kind of extreme reaction to the skinny blonde girl. When I was growing up, I was under the direct impression that if I wasn't a 16 year old phenom with blonde hair and blue eyes, no brand or sponsor was going to look at me. And that was the truth. You know, 
Um, so I'd never fit the mold in America, not in American junior tennis, n- nowhere. Um, was it racist? Yes, it really definitely was. And I can say that confidently still is to the most part for, for, uh, for the most part, but it's changing. Uh, the face of tennis is changing. Uh, people are becoming more affluent. They're putting their children in sports. And I think that uh, this new generation, although it, they are bombarded with social media, literally changing their brains and giving them anxiety and depression and eating disorders. There is still a resistance that wasn't there when I was growing up Mm -hmm. where they're rejecting the Victoria's secrets and there's power in that. And so brands are having to pay attention and, and the people who hold the dollars are having to pay attention. So I think as more young women are empowered to speak up, um, they might be able to go against this tidal wave, athlete or not, of just you know the Kardashians, the damage that they do to body image and you know plastic surgery. So it's it's really really hard to say that it's just tennis and it's in a silo because it's really our culture and our entire society and really globally. Um, but I do think that. Um, there is a strong resistance and there is a change. I would say that one area that I think is often overlooked is how much scientific research can impact the way coaches coach and the words and language parents use. Mm -hmm. Because if I told you that you had to look a certain way to move a certain way on the court, right? That's, that's a argument that can really lead to eating disorder. But as we've seen, the people who look the most athletic are not always the most athletic. And the things you think about body composition, about movement, recovery, longevity, sustainability of muscles has changed. The body fat's important and how much and how and periods and training with your periods, how, how actually harmful it can be if you're doing heavy, you know, heavy hit intervals during your, your cycle or the day of your cycle. So much more scientific research, especially female bodies, male bodies, um, when it comes to sports and sports medicine, I think that can actually be a really big driver in the way we message out to that, the rent a coach on the weekend who's hitting balls and saying, you're fat yes. or, or whatever statement they're saying. So I think it's a trickle down effect coming from science and research. Yes, I was actually going to ask you to possibly give some guidance to anyone that's listening that maybe is a parent or a coach and has younger athletes, and they might see some signs of eating disorder, disordered eating, all of the above, um, low, I mean, self-confidence. I I mean, I don't know about you. I'm sh- You've probably done a lot more work than me on yourself, but I still can remember things that were said to me by coaches. And it's like those things are the ones that are the hardest to push out of the brain and be like, nope, that's not you. That's the, the nasty side that like that's not real. That's not who you are. That's not your value. But there are still coaches that are doing that. There are still parents that make comments. They don't realize how triggering it is. I still can have conversations with people and be triggered like, oh, did I eat too much last night? Do I look bad today? Is my bra strap like showing my back fat? Like stuff like that. Like it's it's a very triggering thing. So what kind of advice would you give to, let's say like a parent that's raising a young athlete? Great question. I think the first thing to ask is, am I saying this statement to be helpful or harmful? 
Am I saying this so that I can make the athlete feel guilty? Or am I actually trying to help them change a behavior or improve in some way? And then, you know, the second is like, do you know if the statement you're going to make will actually lead to a result of better performance, right? Like saying that you're too fat or don't eat that brownie, will that lead to better performance or will it just lower self-confidence? So at the end of the day, you know, there are athletes who are maybe 10 pounds overweight who are still winning championships because of the self-confidence, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So ultimately as a parent, you want your kid to succeed. You want them to be a great athlete. I think you need to figure out ways to boost their self-confidence. Yeah. And so thinking about, will this comment help my child, you know, make good choices or will it hurt them and cut them down? I think those are two very different things and they can sound very similar, but they're different. Mm -hmm. And I think the second point is that, you know, appearance is such an easy target. It's such like, it requires such little brain power. Right. Oh, she's fat. That's why she lost. Yeah. Oh, you ate that brownie. You ate that pizza. That's why you lost. Or you can't, you know, it's such a weak argument. It's like, do better, coach. <laughs> right. Right. Really. It's like, figure it out. Is that really why I lost? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you told me, Neha, you're 0.3 seconds slower and that's what's not letting you get to the ball. Very different than saying you're fat. <laughs> Because now I'm motivated to get 0.3 seconds faster. Mm -hmm. Heck, I want to get five seconds faster if I could. And if the end result of that is that I've lost a few pounds or I've shed a few pounds, it might not be, though, mm -hmm. depending on my body composition. Right. Now you're performance focused. You're not body image focused. Very different. Neha, you got to just get a little bit stronger right here. <laughs> not this is jiggling. Your tricep is jiggling. You know, yeah. very different, very, very different language. It, it messages me very differently. Oh, my coach believes in my ability to progress and grow and isn't attacking my physical appearance. Because that's just a very weak, like, it's just so manipulative. You know, wh what does that do for me? My, I had a coach obsessed with me being, uh, losing eight pounds. And, and, you know, it was muscle. It was like, I was still within the, the normal body fat range. I wasn't obese or anything. And you know, I was a high performing athlete obsessed with these 10 pounds, just 10 pounds, 10 pounds, 10 pounds. Every match that I played, 10 pounds, 10 pounds, 10 pounds, 10 pounds. Then my parents started doing it because they thought, oh, that's, that's the answer. Help yeah. You know, my 21st birthday was like, don't eat that cake. You know, it, those things really hurt you. And you're like, well, what's the big deal? Don't be so sensitive. It's just food. But unfortunately or not, I'm sorry, I was that sensitive. It really did impact me. It didn't help my progress. And when I did lose those 10 pounds, guess what? I also lost speed on my serve and my forehand, my two biggest weapons. Yep. <laughs> and all, all of my self-worth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I gained a lovely eating disorder that ended my career. So it is very vital for us to say, why are we saying what we're saying? And to explain it to the player. Hey, it looks like you're a step slow. When you're a step slow, you're not able to get around your backhand, which is your weapon. How can we, how, what do you think we can do to get you a step faster? Well, coach, I think I should do more sprints. Maybe I need to lighten up a little bit. They'll say it themselves if they have half a brain. Mm -hmm. You know, if the athlete is yeah. intrinsically motivated, they'll say it themselves. Yes. Oh, I love that. And I also have to mention, I do a little teaching on the side and right now my like sweet spot, I've got a cup a handful of girls between the ages of about seven and 
13, I would say. And I absolutely love working with them. And for me, like I've evolved, obviously we've all evolved. um, But from coaching so many different avenues and learning so many different things and aging and just seeing, getting all this experience. Now my motivation is just is she having fun? Is she confident? Is she enjoying this? Is she ready to come back next time? And I can guarantee you, I will always leave them feeling confident and proud and I will never cut them down and we will never be doing sprints because they double faulted. And it's just like, it's so rewarding for me. And I like think that other players who have been through this, that we're talking about these feelings of you know, not being enough based on what our coaches might tell us or what, whatever, what society might tell us. Um, I feel like these coaches are the ones that are adding so much value to young lives, young athletes. And they're the one that's how, that's how they keep coming back and keep showing up and keep wanting to get better. That's just my opinion. Beautiful. Yes. (laughs) And also Michelle, we need more female coaches. Oh, we need more more female tennis coaches. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I have this whole thing is like, all I wanted to do, I I didn't necessarily want to go play pro because I don't have the mental, you know, strength. I didn't have the mental strength. All I wanted to do was be a hitter for a female player. How many hitters for female players are out there? Like, sure, you hit with your friends, but you see all these girls traveling with men, college guys. That's who they're hitting with. And I'm like, what about women empowering women here? Come on, ladies. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I think the other, the one thing I did want to clarify here was that, you know, you can be very accurate and precise and healthy with your language and still be critical and still demand of the athlete what you, what they need to raise their level, right? This isn't about sugarcoating or not saying something because it's tough to hear. It's saying it in an efficient way that's accurate and that helps the athlete intrinsically motivate themselves to get to that next level. So I think it's important for us to differentiate between, oh, she, you know, you don't want to tell an athlete who's fat that they're fat because you don't want to hurt their feelings. No, it's, I want to help them succeed. And they might know that they probably already know that they're fat. You know, like, let's just be honest here. They already know that they're fat. You don't need to tell them that. Right. But you want to empower them to make those decisions for themselves and to be able to handle the tough realities in, in a palatable way. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, let's go. We're already like speeding along here. Talk to me a little bit. You were our co-founder and CEO of South Asians in Sports. This seems like such an amazing nonprofit organization. Big pivot here, but not really. Yeah. But you are, tell me about this. How did it start? And what are you guys, what is what is all, all the stuff going on? Yeah. So in a nutshell, South Asians in Sports is a network of South Asian sports industry professionals um, who work or play in sports around the world. We have about 800 members now. Wow. Um, and we're, yeah, we're growing worldwide. The goal really for us, our mission is to educate, advocate for, and inspire South Asians to work in the sports industry and to advocate for the impact of the South Asian diaspora in the sports industry. And this came about because my sister and I, when we were on tour, we not only didn't see a lot of South Asians who were athletes, but we also didn't see South Asians working in sports 
like the ecosystem of sports, mm -hmm. lawyers, agents, physios, coaches, you know, that kind of behind the desk, in front of the desk. And so it was always like, you know, a, a, it's a generational or cultural shift to, to have more South Asians play pro sports, which we're seeing now, slowly, it's building. But it's not to say, to tell the guy who's, you know, working at Bain and management consulting to jump over to StubHub or to the NBA or to work as a lawyer uh, for the NFL. You know, these are pivots and these are opportunities that generally only white cisgendered men have done. And our, it, you know, the, the network really shows that our diversity, our, our culture, our heritage has a very important impact on sports globally. So come on in. And so because of this network, it's, you know, like, just like you and I had talked about earlier, it's like, hey, I work for the Bucks. Come on, work for the Bucks too. Oh, there's somebody who's Indian who works for the Bucks. I didn't know that. It was a possibility. Tomorrow, Michelle, if I want to be a, a doctor <laughs> as an Indian, I mean, I just turn around and I'll find like thousands of doctors yeah. who will tell me exactly what I need to do, what I need to get on my MCAT, where I need to study, probably help me study, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. applications, right? It's just walk in the park. But if I say, hey, I want to work for the NBA in their video department, or I want to uh, run NASCAR, you know, like it's crickets. Yeah. What? <laughs> so this is what this network is about. And so we do this through panel discussions. We do it through internships. We do it through uh, mentorship programs. And then just generally having a network, awesome. uh, talking to each other, finding out. And because of that, you know, it, these are kind of the, the silent things that, that really make a big difference. So awesome. And then currently you're working with Valera Health. Is, am I saying that correctly? Yes, Valera and, Health. Yeah. Yes. Talk to me about that and what your role is and yeah. what's like day-to-day -day look like for you. Sure. Yeah. So I'm a, a psychotherapist for a, telehealth a telebehavioral health company called Valera Health. They're based out of New York. And they are um, um, a smaller uh, start, actually not smaller anymore, um, uh, a company that strictly does telebehavioral health. And one of the few companies that actually accepts Medicaid and Medicare as well for telehealth. So during the pandemic, they grew like 400x, as you can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and so my day-to-day, -day, I see individual uh, patients okay. with a wide range of mental health um, disorders. You have your typical anxiety, depression, and then, you know, more serious conditions. Uh, I also see some children as well. And I also see some athletes nice. uh, outside of that. So uh, it's really fun for me. I I love what I do. I love working with people one-on-one. -on -one. Um, Valera Health also has uh, like group resources and, and, you know, a lot. They have a lot of really awesome providers um, for you know, medication management, therapy, group therapy. So it's an excellent company. I love working there. And I love the fact that I can work from home. Mm -hmm. I have two small children. Uh, I have a home office. Uh, so I can kind of have best of both worlds for myself and go downstairs and make lunch if I need to or, you know, be, be at home. So I'm, I feel very lucky and, um, you know, knock on wood, it'll continue this way. <laughs> That's awesome. I, 
I often ask people this and it's kind of like a, a bigger question, but what, especially, you know, you've done, you've kind of seen a lot of sides of life and now you're in this amazing position where you're helping out other people and you have your own young family going, what legacy, if you can pass on a legacy to our world, what is the legacy you'd like to leave behind? Oh my goodness. Right. It's a big question. (laughs) This is the kind of stuff that I journal about sometimes, but never share. (laughs) I never share. It's okay. Um, If you don't feel comfortable, that's totally fine. I can pivot to actually. I I mean, yeah, really, honestly, this is a beautiful question. I think, I think I don't know the answer yet. Michelle, I think that it's building for me. I love that. Um, I have some ideas that are value-based and kind of energy exchange-based. Yes. But I, I, I don't think I can articulate it right now. I'll give you an easier one. You've already, you okay. just mentioned um, journaling. So when you're feeling a little off kilter or, you know, you know, sometimes it's just weird vibes in the air. It seems like this week, I don't know about in your world, but everyone I've come in contact this week has said they're exhausted. It's been a weird week. So what do you do to reset? What are some of your ways to work on your own self-care? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, as a therapist, it's really vital for me to have a, a, a lifestyle that's sustainable and that, you know, has all the components of self-care. And it's something that as a athlete, I didn't do very well which really impacted my health, my mental performance on the court. So I I really have um, taken a hard look at my rest Um, and I'm improving. I'm not perfect, but rest, like actual sitting on your butt rest. I have two young children and I'm an A-type personality. So it's like, I gotta, I gotta fold the laundry. I have to fold the laundry. It's sitting there. It's looking at me. It's staring at me. It's talking to me. And it's literally sitting on my hands. Yeah. And having a <laughs> cup of chai, you know, for 15 minutes where I, I'm able to be still and not prove my worth through what I do, but simply by existing and reminding myself to stretch that every week, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes without having a crisis because I'm not productive or, you know, pumping something out, which, you know, our society really just drives us of us. So I think that's probably one of my the, the things I'm working on. Uh, another thing is I really like to completely um, just divert from what I do uh, on a weekly basis on the weekends or when I have time off. So for me, that's like getting really into my workouts or like getting into the garden and thinking like I'm some amazing homesteader. Yes. Trying to grow like one <laughs> damn tomato. But like, you know, putting my hands in dirt, doing something I really am not good at. But, I, but I'm enjoying doing, learning how to enjoy hobbies that I'm not good at that don't have a pretty end result. Eating really good food, home-cooked food. I like to cook a lot. I, I, I think it's a necessity. Mm-hmm. That's very important to me. Um, and I think the other thing is just like talking to the like a, a network of people that are, are really love me and can really lift me up, especially when I'm off. That can remind me of what my baseline is. Um, and then my children, you know, m- most people who have young children, we might think, oh, what a source of stress. I have to do this. I have to do that. But I, I love when I can leave my phone in the other room and be totally present with my kids because they are, they, they get it. They yeah. know how to just be 
in the present moment and they demand of you to be in the present moment, being with them is so, so refreshing. I mean, yes, I also like after four hours, I'm like, okay, I don't want to see anyone. But <laughs> but I think those are those are some of the, the, the big things for me. And I know you mentioned journaling. I do journal. Mm-hmm. I do journal. I do. I leave myself voice notes as well if I can't journal. Oh, cool. Uh, I, I meditate not as consistently as I should, but I, I definitely see the benefits of that. And coming from uh, Eastern traditions, I do like reading um, the Bhagavad Gita. I like reflecting on some of the Sikh traditions and uh, some of the teachings there um, and singing. So I think I find a lot of grounding through through that as well and through my, my heritage. Nice. That's awesome. Well, to wrap this up, we hit on a lot of different things and I, yeah. I, I love these topics and I'm like, let's just, okay, yeah, I hope I, yeah. <laughs> no, you're great. I was just going to say like, what are some resources? How can people learn more about you and what you're doing? Give us some, like, just, you can promote your links, your social media. I don't know if you're big on social media or not, but how can people oh, have, I'm... yeah, get in contact yeah, I think the best way to get in contact, I have a website, which I have not updated. <laughs> I have a website. It's my name.com, nehaoberoy.com. That's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. I think, you know, Google, you'll find everything. You'll find remnants of my past life <laughs> very fast online. And you'll probably guess what I'm about. Uh, you know, email is probably the best way to get in touch with me if you have, you know, if, if you are so inclined. Um, yeah, social media, I'm kind of private about it because it's mostly me and my kids and the silly things they do. Yeah. And I, I'm trying to just find myself, off, get myself off of social media. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> it's like I that constant yeah. battle. Well, at one point. It's a constant battle. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. I'm not someone who posts wisdom or something like that on social media. I don't. Yeah, I, I couldn't do it. LinkedIn and my email are probably the best way to find me. Awesome. Um, and, um, and thank you for this opportunity. This was really fun. Thank you. I love connecting with you. You have so many great things to say. Your, your whole demeanor is just so calming. And like, I love like your voice, your cadence, everything is just very nice. And I could talk, I see how your clients could just be like, let's go. Like I'm ready to chat. (laughs) (laughs) Help me help you. Yes. Um, so I appreciate you taking the time and, Now you get to go hang out with your kiddos and have a great, amazing rest of your day. Thanks. Thanks, Michelle. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you download your episodes. And be sure to visit our websites for all of the tennis deals at tenniswarehouse.com, tenniswarehouseeurope.com, and tennisonly.com.au. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next time, happy hitting. Happy hitting.